Good morning. It's Monday, the 14th of August, and this is Gobind Rajathiraj, based in Mumbai, India's financial capital, but in a long weekend transit right now. Our top reports and themes of the day: shooting inflation and rising oil prices, new concern areas as brokerages put a pause. Is the auditor always right? Private banks and their customers grapple with massive attrition levels. Why does it happen? And solutions. Wave and pay. Amazon's new palm identification service, and a sad passing. Darius Forbes of Forbes Marshall is no more. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Before we dive in, a quick recap of last week. The Reserve Bank of India held rates steady. in the policy review as broadly expected and also as hoped revised its inflation forecast upward to 5.4% for this year speaking of which inflation numbers which are out today and will be high to the point of perhaps being a shock though i guess everyone is trying to see how bad food inflation would really land at incidentally the reserve bank said last week it expects a substantial increase in headline inflation in the near term due to a recent spike in vegetable prices In the markets on Friday the Sensex ended the week down 398 points to 65322 the Nifty closed at 19428 Brokerages who were largely gung ho in the last month are now beginning to sound a little sanguine I would too till the food inflation problem is sorted out but there's an oil problem as well Jeffries India a stock broking firm for instance is saying that increasing crude oil prices progress in China's equity markets and domestic inflation worries are expected to continue to weigh on the Indian equity markets in the near future. On a similar note, Kotak Institutional Equities mentioned that escalating food prices, the rise in crude oil costs, sluggish tax collections and persistent inflation are expected to contribute to continued challenges. The Goldilocks position for Indian equities is getting questioned with crude rallying, China gaining traction, rising India consumer price inflation and yields moving up said Jeffries India in a recent note quoted by media organizations. Speaking of oil, they edged higher last week after the International Energy Agency forecast record global demand and tightening supplies. Thanks to which oil has now seen seven straight weeks of gains, the longest such streak since 2022. Brent crude is now around $86 a barrel, and by the way, around May, crude oil prices had peaked at $114 a barrel, causing much worry around, but as is sometimes the case, prices began to ease off. A rise in crude oil prices means a lot of other raw material prices go up for the consuming industry which has benefited from lower prices in the last year leading of course to better bottom lines and stock prices. The IEA or the International Energy Agency estimated that global oil demand hit a record 103 million barrels per day in June and could scale another peak this month. Meanwhile Saudi Arabia and Russia have cut back on output which could keep inventories down all over 2023 that's this year. and keep prices even higher. Kotak also says that consumption sector volumes remain subdued while raw material prices are beginning to rise once more driven by a substantial surge in crude oil prices something that I just mentioned a little while ago. We have serious doubts about the high profitability of companies sustaining beyond the next 1 to 3 years given the high ongoing and forthcoming disruption to business model and erosion of business modes said Kotak last week. Now that might sound a little dramatic but It is the most important factor when it comes to determining or having determined 
margins and margin benefits that companies have enjoyed thanks to falling raw material prices. Now, back to inflation. We spent the last few weeks agonizing over tomato prices. The next thing to focus on, as I mentioned on Friday as well, will be onion prices, which also is known to be the nemesis of many a government in the past. Let me bring you back to what Pushan Sharma, director at ratings agency Crystal, told me on Friday in the context of looming onion prices. By mid-September, we're expecting that tomato prices could start moderating and that's with supply coming in from Maharashtra and Karnataka. But what is really important here is that onion, another critical ingredient in the Indian thali, that could spring a surprise for consumers. And to understand the reason why onion could spring a surprise, one would have to zoom back and look at the temperature pattern in February. February this year saw higher temperatures than normal and March saw unseasonal rainfall. Now the rubby season, which sees about 70% of India's onion production, the arrivals start typically coming in the month of March. But because of higher temperatures in February, the crop matured early. Typically, this crop has a shelf life of about six months. Now, because of these weather conditions, the shelf life is expected to reduce to about five months. So each year, we have a lean period when it comes to onion towards the end of September. And then the fresh arrival starts coming into the market by October, which is the Kharif onion. This year, because of reduction in shelf life, we might be exhausting a large amount of the onion stock by early September itself, which will lead to an expansion in the lean period and prices could start escalating in the month of September. We're already seeing some early signs of that happening in the month of August. That's one critical ingredient that is going to see uh, prices going up. Vegetable prices too could be elevated between uh, August and September and the consumer could just see some relief only by around October uh, when the fresh Kharif harvest starts coming into the market. Should one squabble publicly with auditors? Auditors and audit firms are humans and are as prone to mistakes and misdemeanors as anyone else. Even in India, audit firm Deloitte has had a checkered past in its association with companies like ILNFS and more recently Baiju's where it always seems to be doing the equivalent of pulling the emergency brake chain in a fast-moving train and then trying to jump off before the train comes to a halt. On Saturday, Adani Ports belonging to the Adani Group said audit firm Deloitte's reason for quitting as auditor of the company was not convincing or sufficient to warrant such a move, and the global firm had all the necessary information it required to conduct the process. This is of course after Deloitte said it was resigning from the role. Adani Ports has already named MSKA and Associates, an independent member firm of BDO International, as its new auditor, it said in a statement. BDO International, by the way, is also Baiju's new auditor. Deloitte's move was amid concerns over certain related party transactions flagged in a report by US short seller Hindenburg in January. But the Indian company did not wish to look into them independently, a source had told Reuters on Friday. The auditor's resignation has brought fresh scrutiny of the financial management at the Adani Group. The group has in the past denied Hindenburg's allegations around improper use of tax havens to buy their own stock in India and other business dealings. Commenting for the first time on the matter, Adani Port said in a statement that in meetings with its leadership, Deloitte indicated concern over a lack of wider audit role as auditors of other listed companies. However, it was conveyed to that auditor, it was not within the remit of Adani Quotes to recommend such appointments as entities that are completely independent, the company said. 
The audit committee of Adani Ports was of the view that the grounds advanced by Deloitte for resignation as statutory auditor were not convincing or sufficient to warrant such a move. Gopal Krishna Pillai, chairman of the audit committee of Adani Ports, said in a statement. Pillai also, incidentally, is the former Home Secretary of the Government of India. Deloitte was not willing to continue as auditor and therefore it was agreed to amicably end the client-auditor contractual relationship, the Irani group said. Deloitte did not immediately respond to a request for comment, reports said, though in its letter of resignation contained in Adani's stock exchange disclosure on Saturday, it said it was resigning with immediate effect as it was not the statutory auditor of a substantial number of other Adani group companies. The company did not consider it necessary to have an independent external examination of certain allegations which were contained in the Hindenburg report, Deloitte wrote in that letter. Deloitte first pointed out that in May, certain transactions flagged by Hindenburg and gave a qualified opinion, or rather only a qualified opinion, related to Adani Ports, indicating its concerns. So what Deloitte seems to be getting to is that it would like a better understanding and an examination of other group company balance sheets, presumably because there are transactions between all of them and it is not able to get a better handle on those transactions and perhaps why at least the stated resignation reason seems to be at this point. Now, Adani has surely some questions to answer in the context of these related party transactions, but what about Deloitte? Unfortunately, fallible as they might be, the weight of trust is tilted towards the auditor rather than the company, whichever one that might be. Yes, auditors could be made to bend here and they have in the past, world over, but the reason organizations work with the big four, Deloitte being one of them, in the first place is to benefit from that halo of trust that that audit firm enjoys and then spreads, and which confers a sense of authenticity on the numbers and accounting practices being followed, which in turn helps the company standing with investors, lenders, and its stakeholders at large. A push here or a prod there usually ends up reflecting badly on the company rather than the auditor. Now, this, of course, is my own experience from all the cases I've seen in India so far and over the years. The Adanis would perhaps be best served to come clean to their shareholders and beg forgiveness, if so, for things done and reasons for the same, rather than go into the equivalent of an accounting street fight, which will surely leave a greater stain on the company rather than the auditor. Banks and Attritions Every once in a few months, I get a call or a message from a young woman or man announcing that they are my new relationship manager in the bank. I greet these young women and men with increasing wariness, knowing fully well, statistically, intuitively and practically that they will be gone in three to six months, being the best case. Nevertheless, they enthusiastically offer to help with any or all of my banking needs, which I don't have as such, and the ones I do, I usually struggle to find resolution as I did this year while filing taxes. India's private banks are witnessing a spike in attrition rates, especially among younger frontline staff. According to reports, lenders are seeing one in three entry-level staff quitting in a year. The larger background to this is a strong demand for loans amid a rush to capture a larger share of this crowded market, with credit demand growing 15% last financial year and expected to grow almost similarly this year, driven mostly by retail loans. Reports suggest that HDFC Bank, the country's largest private lender, saw its employee turnover rate over the last year rise to 34%, Axis 35%, Kotak Bank 50%, and Yes Bank around 43%. It seems that with entry-level relationship managers earning between 30 to 35,000 rupees a month, incentives to switch are far easier to provide, and the temptation, I would guess. Remuneration in this category has grown 8 to 10% annually in the last year, in line with the broader job market 
But staffers try and maximize gains by switching jobs if they can and as fast as they can. But it's not only money that's driving high attrition rate. Perks like flexibility and working conditions are also playing a huge part. Most exits happen within the first six months of joining a banker told Reuters. So what can banks do in situations like this? And what hope is there for customers like all of us? I reached out to Raj Kamal Vempati, Head of Human Resources at Axis Bank. And I began by asking her what was driving such high attrition levels in banking and more importantly, what were banks doing about it? At the macro level, I would say that post-2016-17, it saw several inflection points, you know, post-demonetization, the start of GST, data, RERA, accelerated formalization and digitization has led to, you know, across industries, a lot more investment in expanding the network. So that's the, at the macro level. So what it's done is, in the banking, everybody is increasing their network. There is expansion, there is investment in various kinds of skill sets and also the regular core banking or BFSI jobs, which has meant that there is a happy round robin, perhaps, that's happening across within the industry. I would say 70 to 80% of the people within the industry and they are switching within one company to another. Perhaps also highlighting the point that we may not be investing as much with getting experienced talent. But yeah, the, I, I would say expansion, the competitive pressures and just looking at the same kind of skill sets driven by what's happening in the economy is perhaps one of the key reasons for this heightened attrition. So I'll ask you a couple of questions from both sides. So first, let me start from the employee's point of view. So an employee clearly does not seem to be embarking on this job, either with your organization or a similar one, thinking that it's a career. By inference, people are all about instant gratification. Loyalty means I need to have delayed gratification. Things will come forth, etc. It's about really realizing new experiences. And that's perhaps the expectation of the employee. Today's employee also post-COVID, for him or her, the concept of a brand has shrunk to my manager, my team, etc. You know, the decrease of social capital is the highlighted outcome of what's happened post-COVID, right? So, you know, they are happier just thinking about, okay, my next branch, my next place, etc. The third big trend from an employee perspective, especially in tier two, tier three towns we're seeing is people want to go back to their towns and home towns and they are happy uh, being there. So if, for instance, uh, a bank says, I want to rotate you from one branch to another, even if it means 20 kilometers away, I've seen people just taking the shot saying that I want to be in this branch, this location, etc., closer to my family. These are the three things. And I think on the positive side, yeah, maybe people are more willing to experiment with themselves, go for new experiences, and perhaps are also looking at experiences which will add to their skill sets. And that is the other part that we need to harness. And going back to hometowns, etc., especially with spate of technology in the non-customer-facing roles is also a big advantage where people are seeing work can happen anywhere. And, you know, so from your side, how do you plan for something like this? So as I can see now, anywhere between half and one third of people or employees who join and particularly at the younger or lower end are going to go within the year. I mean, how do you even treat them as your employees or look at them and say, OK, welcome to, let's say, Axis Bank or whichever bank and look forward to a long and prosperous relationship? Because you know that there's not going to be one. You know, I think there are two, three things. All of us are grappling with different things. We as a large bank have taken up the onus of saying that we'll hire to hire freshers and talk careers rather than just here and now. So we have actually upped our entire campus fresher intake by 3x. 
we are really ramping it across. You know, we co- we have the bank say divided into ten to eleven capabilities streams, and we are looking at influxing talent and really training them. Also, changing and reiterating that you're here for careers and experiences. How can you increase your market value? So, one of the things that we often feel is it's easier to get the new experience externally rather than look internally, even if it's own request or even if it's want to have a location of your own choice. That's one. Third thing that we've also looked at is saying that how can we use technology to solve this problem, right? Uh, Yes, we usually look at in a service industry, the regular SOPs of training, etc, etc. But I think banks like ours or large banks have to also look at internal enablers using technology. So we have this wonderful tool called Synthi. I'm just giving an example that Access Bank is using where it is a productivity enabler where the friction to reach out to people, etc, etc, goes away. So it says really in the workplace in your mobile phone, Govind, you talked about the RM who quits and who is not able to solve your problem in maybe other banks. In our bank, the idea is that even if the RM quits, the repository is there and you are using technology as a front-end enabler for people to feel competent and for the customer to see the continuity as well. So I would say all these three things are valid and you've got to hire freshers look at internal career opportunities and change the course to careers and experiences, which is what people seek. And the third is also use technology in a big way to kind of address some of the trends that we are seeing. And that's really the last question. You know, so from a consumer point of view, how do you show that continuity or ensure that continuity as far as possible? As in so that at least on, let's say, the key relationship points or conversations or prior points of connect, all of that stays alive when the next person comes in. So as I talked about, one is Siddhi or uh, what is the app like or digital apps or enablers like Siddhi, which help you give the entire history, etc. for the person so that you don't lose the context. Second is also have people continuing to stay on in careers and build it. You know, the old adage of saying that, you know, people uh, want to stay with managers who are building their careers, who are invested in their learning, etc. It still holds true. You know, people are people. You know, you want to be part of a tribe that you want to belong to, etc. So add to their skill set, invest, reskill, relearn, get them to relearn and show them the path. And the third thing I would say is, despite all of this, you know, and I'm, I'm just maybe I should have highlighted it earlier. There is a certain section at the front end when you're looking at frontline attrition and you've seen it very, very high. A lot of people are averse to do sales when they are young. Maybe it's the second and the third bounce. When they come in, they will reconcile, okay, sales is a career. How do you kind of shorten that lifespan through conversations, through training, and maybe having academia partnerships also, I would say, in a, in a big way. But I think it's a real problem, real issue. But given the expansion that is slated in the industry, this is something that all of us have to come together to address. Raj, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Govind. Incidentally, a disclosure. The private bank who I bank with and I was referring to before the conversation was not Access Bank. Pay with your hand. There is a certain sense of power that flows through you when with a mere wave of a hand, you can dispatch something or someone or more appropriately, get things done. Amazon has launched a service where you will be able to scan your palm at any of the company's more than 500 whole food stores in the United States and join a service called Amazon One, the Wall Street Journal is saying. A quick diversion before I proceed on Amazon One. I don't know if you've used the Digi Yatra app, by which you can whisk yourself through airports like Delhi right through to security checks, saving much time and the prospect of your ID card 
being looked up and down by a security official at the airport terminal. In the first part, before you enter the terminal, you have to scan the QR code on your mobile phone app that's linked to your ticket face down and then simultaneously look at a camera that scans your face. Once the gates open and you enter, you have to do it again just before security check. But this time, you just have to look at the camera and the gates open. You don't need to scan the phone QR code again. Now think of Amazon's Palm. It's interesting and of course yet only an extension to what we are perhaps already seeing and experiencing. So once enrolled in Amazon's scheme, your hand is all you need to pay there. Amazon fresh grocery stores, Canada restaurants, a handful of retailers at airports, some stadiums and concert venues, and some Starbucks locations too, according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, very broadly, this is seen as another way of crashing into the payment space currently dominated by the likes of PayPal, Apple or Square in, in the United States, but presumably this could apply elsewhere too. Interestingly, since Amazon has not succeeded at making mobile devices or operating systems, it is in a sense trying to make them unnecessary, the Wall Street Journal says. But Amazon One also represents an ambitious attempt to become a full identity provider, a sort of universal digital skeleton key that can be tied to pretty much anything else, including eventually health records. Companies that become the identity provider for a person also get the opportunity to sell them other goods and services and push themselves deeper into their lives in myriad other ways. Amazon One's expansion so far in 2023 has extended to retailers in nine major U.S. airports and 13 sports arenas. Further, at places where the company's hand-scanning sensors are installed, you can use it to enter a venue, identify yourself as a member of a loyalty program, or verify your age at a bar. In the future, you might be able to gain access to your company's office, a parking garage, a gym, or a sign at a hospital or doctor's office. Now think about India's own unique ID program or digital identity program whose objective in some ways is to ensure, at one level at least, ease of access in this form and easy authentication. So I quite like the gesture of literally a wave to get you through. Of course, there are privacy issues and concerns in all of this, but I'm sure that those with a better understanding of it will address it. By the way, the underlying technology has been around for more than a decade. It uses near-infrared light to peer through a person's hand and capture the unique pattern of blood vessels inside as well as the surface of the palm, the WSJ reports. Creepy, isn't it? But it can make a life lot more simpler. And somehow, the two always seem to go together. Darius Forbes No More This is my first obituary mention in the core report. It's of Darius Forbes, known as India's boiler man who passed away on Friday morning at the age of 97 in Pune. And I'm bringing it up for three reasons. First, I had the privilege of visiting the Forbes Marshall factory in Chakan near Pune just three weeks ago and spending half a day there walking around its extremely well-laid-out, spotlessly clean and well-ventilated plant. Second, it's not often that one comes across a business leader whose life and times are intertwined with India's business as well as political history and the evolution of both. Third, it is my experience that there's something spiritually uplifting about great shop floors which somehow reflect and carry the energy, enthusiasm, and vibrations of those who work there, and indeed the many who have contributed to its making and then passed on. You can see it in the focus and contentment of the faces of the men and now increasingly women hard at work there, and sometimes just a near musical, gentle hum and occasional steam being let off, quite literally in this case. I can also assure you that great manufacturing places with positive energy usually reflect in great bottom lines and stock prices too. Even a drive around Chakan, where I was, with the sprawling factory campuses of Bajaj Auto and Mahindra, among countless others, will tell you that.
A few words on Darius Forbes. He was born in 1926 at Bombay, now Mumbai, and moved to Madras, now Chennai, studying at the Madras Christian College and then later at the Loyola College. He participated in pre-independence protests and at one such protest in support of Gandhiji's call to British to quit India, hell near Marina Beach, was fired upon. His friend, who was next to him, died during the firing. In 1943, he enrolled in the Benares Hindu University or BHU to study metallurgy and there, Dr. Sarvapalli Radhakrishnan, former president of India, who was then the vice-chancellor, took him under his wing. Incidentally, Forbes apparently attended Dr. Radhakrishnan's talks on the Bhagavad Gita, which he said is one of his most enduring memories. In 1946, he returned to Bombay or Mumbai and joined his uncle, Mr. G.G. Boy and Marshall's business in December that year. Mr. Marshall dealt with steam turbines, electric motors, switches and other electrical accessories for industrial use. They also sold diesel engines, road rollers, stone crushers, water tube boilers and tractors. Darius Forbes marketed the steam engineering products for J.N. Marshall and Company. In the mid-50s, India had a foreign exchange crisis and it was increasingly becoming difficult to import products and parts. So Darius Forbes set up manufacturing in the garage of their home in Mumbai but soon ran out of space. There was already some manufacture by local workshops. So in 1957, a plot of land was purchased in Kasarwadi on the Bombay-Pune Highway and in 59, the factory was up and running. Forbes Marshall's new factory is in Chakan, which I just spoke of, which is a roughly 13-minute drive further from Kasarwadi, which of course is much closer to Pune and where it arrives Forbes first set up. The Kasarwadi factory, incidentally, is flanked by other engineering majors like Atlas, Copco and Alpha Laval, in this case both Swedish, all companies that Copco, Laval and Forbes Marshall are in somewhat allied businesses, air compressors, heat transfer to steam boiler and instrumentation. Now back to Darius Forbes. Not surprisingly, I guess, those who work in Marshall remember Darius more for his philanthropy rather than his engineering prowess, including his setting up of a 35-bed subsidized hospital in the factory premises after encountering an accident outside and finding that the nearest medical assistance was back in the city. That's it from me then. Have a great day ahead. We don't have an edition tomorrow morning, being Independence Day celebrations and also banks, businesses and the financial sector being closed. So see you day after tomorrow. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.